Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. End of the year is here, my friends. Every year, end up having one or two, maybe even three podcasts where there were great intentions for those to go up and meet the world and hopefully bring joy or amusement or education or something. And I'm closing the year with the number one I wish I was able to run it when it was meant to run episode. And that was a my racing life and career, my friend Beth Peretta. So this ended up being about two hours long. As you'll hear in the start of part one here, uh, we were certainly enjoying some adult beverages over the, uh, the phone lines. And cut this into two parts, as I don't know how many people want to listen to two hours straight of any podcast, myself included, but... This was meant to run in May, leading up to her debut as an entrant. The Indy 500 Peretta Autosport made big headlines with another friend, Simone Di Silvestro, a largely uh, pit crew and operational crew and managerial staff comprised largely of women racers like that. So did this interview, I'm struggling to remember, maybe March maybe April of 2021 and for whatever reasons just was unable to get this whole thing ready to go in May leading up to Preda Autosports debut. So here we have this to hope bring a lot about Beth, her upbringing, her work history. We end part one here in the midst of her uh, potential employment, which leads to employment with the, uh, the Fiat Chrysler Group interviewing with the late and renowned Sergio Marcione. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in here. Yeah, Beth, East Coast Energy, being interviewed by yours truly, West Coast Energy. Hopefully it's something you will enjoy. She is a fascinating person, a woman who takes nothing off of nobody. She kicks a lot of ass. One of the many things that I appreciate about her. So having known Beth for however long, 10 plus years, it was great to be able to spend some time and hopefully bring a fairly decent amount about the woman who I respect a lot and appreciate and continue to root for. Uh, Have her bring her life and story to you in part one here, and we'll get to part two following up right next. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. Beth Peretta, you are an amazing assembly of awesome. I've told you that many times. Uh, I'm making, there's no attempt to hide it. You and I have been- It's not just for the podcast. Well, boy, but wait till you hear the outro. I'm just going to say all kinds of mean things when we're done recording. Um, (laughs) Is she gone? Oh, is she done yet? All right, let's get real. Uh, You and I have been wanting to do this for a little bit. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I am, as we both agreed we would do, I am enjoying- a fine adult beverage. This would be a Murphy's imported stout. It is dark. It doesn't taste too heavy, but uh, I'm liking this. This was uh, recommended by a listener, Daniel Summersgill from the UK, but who lives in a state that you're, you know, a little bit about Michigan. What are you drinking on your end before we get going? I am drinking a bullet bourbon. I am a bourbon drinker. Uh, and I, I think today's the day I can finally publicly announce uh, I'm actually allergic, <laughs> allergic to beer and wine. 
Wow. Well, Learn, I learned that about two years ago and it makes it, it, it connected some dots for me. So I'm drinking bourbon. We are steering clear of Michael Shank when you are on pit lane at the Indy 500 with your new Peretta Autosport team. Cause that boy, uh, he, he has replaced most of the water in his body with bush light. So yes, we want no allergic reactions to <laughs> no. uh, IndyCar team owner. So we've known each other for however long. I've always enjoyed your company and your thoughts and your everything on the sport. And it just occurred to me that while you and I have had, I don't know how many hours uh, of conversations just between ourselves, not on the record stuff, you know, we need to do more. So folks know more about you, your background, where you came from, where racing entered your life, this little, funnily enough, My Racing Life and Career series that we do here. Yeah. I just was thinking, man, this is this is perfect to sit down with Beth. So why don't we do that? Let's start off with where do the Perettas come from? And tell me about your parents and siblings growing up. Okay, that is fantastic. I'd love to talk about my family because they are no longer with me. So I'm, I'm super... Uh, happy that you asked about them. So I grew up in Connecticut, uh, the very tiny state in New England, you know, and, uh, have always, was always a New Englander until I moved to Detroit, Michigan for my job with Fiat Chrysler. So we'll get to that. But I grew up in Connecticut, kind of near Lime Rock would be my home track. If I had to pick a home track, it's Lime Rock. Uh, and, I did not come from a racing family and I didn't come from an automotive family. So I sort of uh, found it on my own and found it very young. Um, When I say not an automotive family, meaning like it wasn't our family business, anything like that. However, when I was young, my dad, uh, he was interested in cars in the sense that he had restored a couple and it was very much a hobby. And when I was really little, so it was my mom and dad and myself and my brother. And my brother was 11 years older than me. And uh, about two months after I was born, he was diagnosed with cancer. He had leukemia. So, Mm. and there's, you know, there's, it was kind of a a tough way for me to probably grow up and for, for our, you know, what our sort of family scenario was. So he was, uh, he was diagnosed when he was 12 years old and he died when he was 17. So he had it for five years, um, and, and fought it valiantly. So by the time when, when he died, I was, uh, just about six. So I was, you know, five and, and change. So I was just about six years old. Um, but my dad had a 1930 model a Ford when I was a kid. Yeah. And he had it restored and that was his day, but he had it as a daily driver and we would go to car shows and yeah, no joke. And I still remember sitting in the back of it and, um, it, you know, it was a hard top. And I remember sitting in the back of it. We had this one wool blanket that was always in the back seat to sit on because to sit to have over you because it was freezing cold in the heat. You know, there's like not really heat in the 1930 Ford, um, and I always remember like this particular wool blanket and the plaid of that blanket. And like, that was the blanket for the car. And anyway, so we, we had that, we had that car and then my brother, uh, like restoring it and going to these car shows, it was sort of this activity. It's that social side of, of cars and, and social side of racing that people are familiar with. We weren't racing people per se, but I, I thought about this several years ago of where it kind of started for me. And, um, 
because we were in and out of the hospital a lot and they obviously had to bring, they bring me everywhere. So that was just my, that was my, that was my experience. Um, I would be, you know, flipping through the channels on TV, uh, because I kind of would have to distract myself while they were just, you know, dealing with stuff. So I'd be in either in you know the living room, whatever, not staying out of the way. I, as I would flip through the channels, I would land on racing, whether it was NASCAR, whether it was Formula One, open wheel, IndyCar, whatever. And it was soothing to me. Mm. Watching racing, the cadence of it, I found soothing. So I discovered it really, I mean, I'd say even as a five-year-old, just, and it wasn't something that my family was watching. It was something that I just kind of stumbled upon. But because I would watch it and I'd watch it whenever it was on, I then got familiar with the names and the this and the that, and and like I say, the rhythm of it. And so it was just always there. And I don't remember a time it wasn't there. So that's kind of really like kind of the, 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 where the seed was planted. Fast forward to my brother wanted to have a, he wanted to then restore a car. And so he was probably about 15 years old and said to my dad, like, Hey, I want to, you know, I'd like to like, what if we restore, I, I would really love if we could restore a truck. And then when I turned 16, so maybe he was like 14 when this happened, when I turned 16, it would be mine. Like, let's, let's do a project. And then when I get my driver's license, like it would be mine oh, cool. and I'd like to do a truck. And so my dad said, yeah, absolutely. That'd be a great idea. Like I say, it must've been 14 because, um, they researched and whatever. And then, you know, we're looking in Hemmings motor news as you do and found uh, whether they were in the newspaper or what, but they wound up finding this 1952 Ford truck. And they actually found two of them, uh, like basically one to restore and then one that to get extra parts from. And they bought them and they were in our garage. So we had this detached garage at our, our little tiny house in Connecticut, in Farmington, Connecticut. And they started working on this renovation of this 1952 truck. And I mean, and if anyone's gone through the restoration of a car or whatever, you know that it, it, there's just parts everywhere yeah. and yeah, it's just, it can be, it can look like a bomb went off in your garage. And so that was our life. And, um, so what was amazing? And again, I didn't, you know, I realized it later looking back was I was, you know, three years old, four years old, five years old, and I would wander into the garage where it was sort of this beehive of activity. And like the neighbor who was really good friends with my dad, um, they were lifelong friends. Uh, our neighbor, John, would he'd come over and, you know, it's that thing of like, you know, just everybody be kind of sitting around bullshitting and talking while my brother and my dad were just like working on bits of the car because it's just like something to do. Yeah. And I'd wander in as like a three-year-old, four-year-old. And instead of shooing me away, they would give me a part to clean and say, take the grease off of this. And obviously there's something very sweet about that. One is my dad being a good dad. My brother and I, of course, were 11 years between us. So, uh, and he was just that amazing big brother that was so happy to have a little sister. So there's that dynamic. I mean, there's a huge age gap. We're a boy and a girl. So we're not like fighting over the same toys uh, because of being 11 years apart. And he was super excited to be a big brother and add the layer of he's got leukemia and life is precious and we don't know how long he's around. So everything was, um, 
just very, very sweet and lovely. And so little did they know that that gesture set me on a path. Fast forward to a couple of years later, uh, my brother gets his driver's license. Uh, the truck is not done yet. Um, he actually passed away. It was the, he, it was the, uh, September of his senior year of high school. Mm. And, uh, the truck was not done. It was still in a million pieces. Um, and, uh, after he passed away, I started reading car magazines. I remember like, you know, if we were in, you know, the store, I would just go over to the, like, if you, you know, there's like the magazine section, I would immediately pick up cars, uh, magazines about cars. Um, I remember as I got older, you know, we'd have this thing where, you know, if you had it, I, I would set before this, like the beginning of the semester, like, okay, my parents would say, all right, if you get a certain GP grade point average, you know, you can have a gift, at, you know, you, you can have a gift at the end of the semester, like, but I'd have to set it. Like, it was always setting goals. If you get this grade point average, you can have whatever, like the, and there was, you know, like a, it was always like negotiated ahead of time. And I remember when auto, automobile magazine started, David E. Davis. Love, David E. Davis. One. Yep, publisher. Jean Linda Mood. Yeah, she was before awesome. Before she was Jean Jennings, right? And um, I remember saying I want a subscription to Automobile Magazine because it was like new and glossy. And if so I my reward was if I got good grades, I could get Automobile Magazine. <laughs> and I did, right? Because, of course, that was like the carrot at the end of the stick. So I'm that much of a dork. I mean, let's be honest. It's that I, I've always been this, this kid. And so, I mean, I went headlong into the automotive thing and I learned later that that often happens, uh, when you're like a surviving sibling, because I saw that that was, you know, so this is like the seven-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old me. So you, it's funny what you're perceptive about that you certainly don't know consciously, but I saw that that was this connection that my, my dad had with my brother. Mm. So after my brother was gone, I wanted to take that place Yes, and make sure that that, because what happens with kids when you're in those sort of tough situations, a kid just wants to make everything okay. And that's what it was. But of course I go like to the nth degree with it. And I wound up becoming the kid in the family, like the person in my family to this day that like, if anybody's got a question about a car, we'll call Beth. And so it's funny. Like it was never, it was like, it wasn't like, it's a novelty when I first meet people like, Oh my God, she knows a lot about cars. Like, Oh sweetie, I've known a lot about cars since I was eight. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, uh, you know, I might've worked in other industries and like found my, found my way eventually to here, but like anybody that's known me forever is like, of course this is what she does. So one of the things that I enjoy about doing these kinds of interviews, Beth, is yes, we're going to talk about racing and there's going to be a lot of racing in it, but uh, probably get that in a lot of places. I love the more personal conversations that also have strands involved in racing. Right. So knowing that you were born into a household where I don't know if I want to call it conflict, not interpersonal conflict, but there is something pretty scary going on Mm -hmm. that you were born into and was part of the family dynamic to manage and deal with, with your brother. I'll just share uh, something from my side and there's some pretty similar parallels. uh, And I've spoken about this before, so it's nothing new, but 
Uh, same thing growing up. My mother uh, had massive um, mental health issues, massive mm-hmm. uh, from being suicidal to multiple personalities to a lot of oh, things that, but it's no different than what you grow up into in terms of your introduction to the world in the first few years of your life. That is normal for you. You, I know no different. You, you add knew no context, different. right, mm-hmm. later, and you go, okay, that might have been a little different than other people's upbringing, but right. I know uh, I know how this scenario with my mother and her being gone maybe half of every year, being sent to uh, state mental institutions and such, that interaction, those happenings, shaped so much of how I saw the world, saw people and how they dealt with it. Those who Mm -hmm. were harsh and critical uh, of her, those who were loving and compassionate, that thing I was born into just that was my lot in life shaped so much of who I am today and how I act and behave in the world. I'm curious how you same thing, your brother being lost so early in your life, yeah. What what do you see from that time where you go, oh, that's made a lot of who Beth Peretta still is today? Yeah. And it's funny because it's I have understood it differently at different points in my life. Um, and in fact, I just had a, a light bulb moment in, in 2020. I mean, I'm an avid reader and have always been. Um, and I was reading a book uh, actually about PTSD. Um, and I tend to read nonfiction. I don't tend to read books like that. I tend to read about like history and automotive history and racing history and, you know, general stuff. I mean, I, again, my bookshelf is probably, it's either boring or interesting depending on who's listening. Mm. But, um, with that said, I was reading this book about PTSD and, uh, I had a light bulb moment about realizing about childhood trauma because admittedly, and this is, might sound ridiculous to people. It never occurred to me that what I had was childhood trauma. And the reason it didn't occur to me is because I have these very loving parents who were great and, and did their best. And, and I, I, and, and of course I, you know, I, I was reading this and, and learned about like things that happen and that therefore what happens to your brain and whatever. And I, as I started reading, I'm like, Oh, actually, okay. So I did actually have that. And it, again, I say like, it, that might seem so obvious. It wasn't obvious to me because if it's your normal, it isn't until you have those comparative things. One, one thing that I was, I was always acutely aware of is I have an understanding of, um, you know, illness and, and death and, and, uh, not being afraid of it per, per se, but not, not just being like a daredevil. I mean, meaning understanding that it's a part of life. And ideally it will happen. I mean, I'd love to live to 120. Like, it, you know, but that idea that uh, it was funny. I remember being in, in college or even after when, actually probably well out of college, when I was knew somebody whose like grandmother died. And it was the first time that they knew someone who had died. And I remember being so surprised because I have, you know, my mother was the youngest of 10 kids. So I have a lot of older, older relatives and great aunts and uncles. And so I've been to a lot of funerals in my day through the natural course of things. And I remember somebody saying to me like, oh my God, yeah, my grandmother died. It's like the first time I've ever known. And I, I, that's just striking me. Whereas I had this opportunity where it, it was just part of life. Um, and so, you know, did that set me on a course? Probably. And again, like everybody, everybody has their lens, but 
the idea that there, that it could have been considered something that was like traumatic and this and that. The one thing that I, I do acutely remember is my, so when, when this was happening, it was in the seventies. And so my brother, when he would go through chemo, he would have, um, you know, he'd wear, uh, he'd lose his hair and keep in mind, see when he was diagnosed, I mean, this is like middle school, high school, like, is there a worse time to be going through something so difficult? Mm. And, you know, he'd lose his hair and he'd have to, like, he'd had a, he had a wig and I remember, you know, I'm from a medium-sized town, let's say 30,000 people. Maybe then it was like, you know, 20 to 30,000 people. But everybody knew who he was, who knew who we were. Like, because of course, everyone in high school knows each other or te- whatever. And they knew what he was going through. But I remember like walking into a grocery store in town and you could see people like turn and whisper. Because back then, mm. seeing a little bald kid, people would turn and look. Now, because it's, you know, we now have exposure to what that looks like when you see a little kid or you see anybody who's going through that, you see like a woman who's fighting breast cancer. And so she's got the bandana on her head and she doesn't, you know, you can tell. And same thing with a child. You can tell because we've all seen it. It's been on TV. It's, you know, and that's one thing that is wonderful about TV and things like that, of telling stories and normalizing things like that is, um, you're not getting those stares that you used to get then. Um, I mean, goodness, I remember like when people would have a broken leg with a cast on and people would stare like, what's going on there? Like, I've got a broken leg, right? But that added like attention when you're going through like the work. So as a kid, I remember that. I remember being with my family and getting and having stares. And one of the things that it always kind of taught me early was like, you never know what somebody's going through. And you might think you know what they're going through, but you might, but you, and, and even if you might know that, okay, it's cancer, do you know what that's like? And I think that that was sort of a little framework of, um, certainly being empathetic or trying to be empathetic, um, and, and taking a pause to, so yeah, that, that probably shaped it. But when I say, uh, I didn't really think of myself as having gone through a trauma is again, I don't, I know no different, but my parents were fantastic and supportive of everything. Somebody asked me once, and this was great. It was after, actually it was after my, it was when my mom was sick. So my mom died in 2012. My dad died in 2016, but in 2012, and to put it in perspective professionally of what was going on, because if I look back at what the, where I was, I was working for Fiat Chrysler. Um, I'm doing, you know, basically the, building this SRT street and racing technology brand as a standalone brand. Um, so doing marketing and operations for that, which is really like the business of it and, and the positioning and all that, uh, bringing the Viper back to, uh, launching the Viper. Uh, I also had that motorsport responsibility. So we've got the NASCAR program with Penske. We're launching the Viper race program in America Le Mans series at the time and announcing that that's coming back. And I had just moved, I had, you know, the year before had moved to Detroit for that job. So I I had been living in Boston and I get relocated to Detroit for this FCA job with SRT. About five, six months after I am in Detroit, my mom is diagnosed with cancer. So I'm flying back and forth because I, you know, my mom, dad and I were very close and she's going through this and it was total like out of left field. And, uh, when I think of like all of the things that you're juggling, like we, we, we think we know, you know, what all these things entail, but like then when you're in the middle of it and you're living it, 
it's a completely, um, you know, it, it's a completely different thing when you're walking down that path yourself. Mm. And, um, and certainly I couldn't have gotten through any of that if I didn't have, if I hadn't had, um, the support of, you know, people around me. But after when my mom was sick and, and, w- and then when she passed, somebody asked me the question, cause I was actually getting ready to write the eulogy. Cause I delivered both my mother. I, I, I did the eulogy for both my mom and my dad. And, um, somebody asked me the question, after your brother died, did your parents, were your parents overprotective? Which is a very fair question yeah. because you've got one remaining kid, you know, why not wrapper and gauze? And, and if they had, you wouldn't necessarily have faulted them for having done that. And I, and nobody had ever asked me that before. And I never had thought of it before. And the reality was the answer was exactly the opposite. They did not do that. They supported me with everything. And uh, I started uh, getting my mom to watch F1 races with me because it was just like something to do. And she starts watching them and she's like totally into it. Awesome. I don't find out. She doesn't divulge for like a couple of years later. And I don't know why it never occurs to her to say this through my entire childhood. She's like, you know, when your dad and I started dating, because we never talk this way anyway, this is why this is even funnier to me. She goes, we used to go to the local racetrack in Plainville, which is not there anymore. Plainville, Connecticut, which is like the next town over. Like it was a, I, it was like a small oval is what mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Sure. And she goes, and I used to do timing and scoring. What? I was like, were you, Mom! would it have killed you to have mentioned <laughs> that? Like, I don't know, 30 years ago. Like what? What? Wow. Like, I'm not saying she was Judy Stropus, but like the fact that they actively went to the race racetrack, oh, like cool. consistently, and my mom's doing timing and scoring. And I'm like, oh, so it is uh, nature versus nurture. Like, oh, this is in my genetic code. <laughs> But literally it was like, you know, like years later. And then the other hilarious story I have of like, like light bulb moment is, and I kid you not, this happened. My, um, so my dad, so my brother dies. He eventually restores the the truck 10 years later because he, like, he just left it. He could never, he, he couldn't touch it. So he eventually restores the truck. And, um, there's this day that I'm in the driveway with, uh, I'm, I had a, um, when I, I worked for Aston Martin and I had this Lotus Elise as my fun car because I felt like if I work for a British company, I need to, my, my fun car needs to be British. So I bought this Lotus Elise, which was a hoot. Um, I certainly recommend it to anyone. If you haven't driven one, drive one. If you haven't owned one, own one. Um, great car. It's basically like a, a go-kart with a stereo. And I kept it for a couple of years. I kept it at my parents' house just because I didn't have a garage at my place in Boston. So I um, had a, the timing was such that I had an Aston Martin press car that Mm. I had had delivered to my parents' house because same thing, like I just needed to be delivered somewhere safely because I was going to be taking it to an event at like Lime Rock or New York City or what. So the press car comes in from like the fleet management company, gets drop shipped at my parents' house. It was an Aston Martin Volante, uh, DBS Volante, uh, which they were launching at the time. So to put it in perspective, that car at the time was probably just shy of 300 grand. Yeah. It's in my driveway. Wow. My Lotus Elise is there. My company car was a Land Rover of some ilk, my Aston Martin company car. So I have a Land Rover. My dad has the truck, the 1952 Ford pickup in the driveway. 
And my mom is like off in the, in the yard gardening, like whatever. She's like, you know, weeding the flower beds. And, uh, my dad and I, he's, uh, washing, hand washing the truck and I'm hand washing the Lotus. And we're doing that thing like where I've got a bucket, he's got a bucket, but we're passing the hose back and forth. And he makes this comment, uh, because he was in that process, which a lot of guys do where like, he was like, it's like reverse nesting. Like they're trying to like clean out, like, you know, cleaning out all the crap that's been in the garage for years and whatnot. And he'd been kind of going through that phase, just like, you know, just trying to get organized. So I'm sudsing up the Elise and he's, you know, washing the truck and and we're passing the hose back and forth. And my dad says out loud, I think, I think I'm going to sell the truck. And I was like, what? I'm like, well, if you're going to sell it, I'll buy it. And he looked at me kind of, you know, quizzically and he's like, you'd want it. And it was that moment where like, I'm literally standing there with probably like, you know, a sponge, a a sudsy sponge in my hand next to a Lotus, next to an Aston Martin DBS Volante and next to a a Range Rover company car. And I, and I think his daily driver at that time was like a Volkswagen, you know, Jetta that I had bought for him on my (laughs) Volkswagen employee plan before, you know, before I left. And I look, I looked at him and I go, what do you think this is? Like this car, like this Lotus, that Aston Martin, my job, this company car, that Volkswagen, like all of this is because of that truck. And he looked at me and he was like, what? I go, my entire career is because of that truck. Like that truck isn't leaving the family. That's Michael's wow. truck. And he literally had that. He reached in his pocket. I'm not even kidding. He reached in the pocket and he pulled out the keys and he, he, handed the keys to me and he goes, it's yours. He goes, it was always yours. At which point you we, we both went into and it was a like, puddle. It was like, you know, well, right. And it was that thing like, like, all right, I'm going back to washing my Lotus. Whoa. And he's like, I'm going back to washing the truck. Cause like, we never acknowledged it. Like here I am this crazy kid voraciously reading car magazines and books and watching everything about cars and racing. And probably all I was trying to do was capture my brother and capture that relationship he had with my dad and just anything I could do to bring it back. That's beautiful, Beth. I mean, seriously, that's beautiful. And the reason, the reason I asked about your brother, which I'd known about. Right. Is knowing you, uh, in your professional career, you have a, badass steely side to yourself and that (laughs) but that doesn't have to be negative right no 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 it's a badge of honor for me believe right so you've got the balls of steel side of you but you also have that super empathetic side to you that on pit lane at the indy 500 12 hours of sebring lamont all the other Mm -hmm. places you've been professionally You don't often get those two personality dynamics within the same person. And so I know we're looping back a little bit here, yeah. but that's why I was curious about yeah. the the house you grew up in and the dynamic, because I had a sneaking suspicion that by nature, by what sounds like pretty amazing parents, yeah. you have been blessed, I would say, with this duality where 
on the one side, you will do many things and have done many things, whether it is straight up STEM initiatives or straight up women were taken over initiatives, you know, come right. one, come all, this is our yeah. future here. Uh, purely benevolent and coming from that place of creating, uh, you know, harmony and positivity. And then you have the holy crap flamethrower Beth Peretta, which, right? <laughs> but you need, yeah. you need, you, have you to. need that because. Listen, when you're five foot four and blonde and walking in our room, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta start high. You gotta start high. I can always dial it back. And yeah. so that's, uh, it's fascinating to know that, you know, uh, again, I'm not saying it's all from this, but uh, the roots that that's we see uh, yeah. on display today, they, they go very deep, uh, very deep for you. Let me, uh, let me ask this, Beth. So mm-hmm. this professional side of yours in mm-hmm. the automotive world, which then becomes more the competition and racing world, what was the original goal for you college coming out of, you know, adding additional degrees and education, mm-hmm. were you thinking, boy, it'd be really cool to have a corner office somewhere in Manhattan for automotive company X. And there, there I am until I start collecting retirement or was the racing right. thing a bug you had that you knew you wanted to, uh, to pay attention to at some point? No, I didn't think racing, it never occurred to me that watching racing would then be something that I would be involved in. It just was not my, uh, it wasn't my experience. It wasn't. And again, I think because I wasn't able to connect something that I loved to, therefore I should put, be, you know, find a way for a, a place for myself inside it. I think in theory, if, you know, maybe my parents could have nurtured that differently had, had it been their experience, but it really wasn't other than the timing and scoring. But, um, with that said, I, I mean, I went to college, I have a degree in broadcasting and film. I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And because the other thing I, in, in addition to watching racing, I always love documentaries and I still do. I love, I, as I said, I love nonfiction. I love documentaries. I love information. I love learning about history. And I had seen this uh, documentary when I was in uh, parts of a documentary series that when I was in high school, that really um, resonated with me. It was called Eyes on the Prize. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. So it was on public television and it was one of those amazing multi-night documentaries that if you're our generation X, we saw it a lot in school because they would show us different parts of it. It's about uh, Eyes on the Prize, about the civil rights struggle uh, in the U.S. And it's sort of from, you know, the the, the great black migration and the starting in the 20s and then the, the civil rights struggle and everything kind of all parts of that from all angles. So it's this multi-night, wonderful documentary, and we we would see it in social studies, and then you'd see it in history, and you'd see it in, you know, whatever class. So it resonated with me about like, wow. And that was kind of like a moment where I was like, oh, this is interesting. I want to do that. So I went to, I went to college, went to film school, but switched to broadcasting, which is television versus film, uh, and, was, and basically was effectively almost like a double major of history because I thought, I want to make documentary films. Uh, my junior year writing for television class, uh, we all have like a string of these aha moments. Um, and one of this was one for me at that, at that moment was, um, beginning of junior year writing for television class, professor comes in, sits down, hands out the curriculum and it says, hi, I'm Jim Davini. Um, I, so, uh, 
Eyes on the Prize was most was partly done with WGBH in Boston because a lot of the public television stuff, yes. you know, a public television station, you know, kind of spearheads it. WGBH in Boston is the premier, one of the premier documentary filmmaking home, you know, places within the PBS network. And so this guy sits down, my writing for a television guy, and he's like, "Yeah, my name is Jim Devenny, and um, I'm a writer." And I and I, he goes, "I was the executive producer of uh, Eyes on the Prize." <sighs> And I, right. And I was like, wait, what, what? Like, dude, this is why I'm here. So funny, funny thing was, and of course he was a great class and he's a great guy. And one thing that was really cool, I went to Boston university for undergrad. And one of the things that was cool in the college of communication, um, and in the school of broadcasting and film, like you'd literally walk into your professor's, um, offices and there would be Emmys on, on the shelf. And, they, every professor there, at least that I encountered, had a professional background. They weren't just career academics, with all due respect, but just saying for something where you're really wanting to like learn a trade or a profession like that, how cool is it that this is somebody that's kind of effectively teaching on the side? Um, so with that said, um, the timing of it, how funny is this? Uh, they, I'm dating myself, but he makes this announcement. I swear to God, I think it was still the, it was the first day of class. And he goes, um, okay, so G- WGBH has been commissioned by this new network that Ted Turner ha- is building called the History Channel. And they've commissioned WGBH to make the first two documentaries for the History Channel. And they were going to be like these two like little documentary series, like whether it was multi-night or whatever. And we need, so this is, I, I, with it, if it wasn't the first day of class, it was, you know, with a few days after. He goes, we need interns for these documentaries that are going to be made for this new thing called the History Channel. So he goes, we need, I forget what it is, like we need 10 interns or whatever it is, or we've got space for five interns. And he said, the first two documentaries that we've been commissioned to make Number one, uh, the first one is called The History of Rock and Roll. Like, to, again, it was more like, we'll figure out what it's going to be called, but like, these are the two genres. One is The History of Rock and Roll. The second one is The History of the Automobile. Oh, so he's like, wow. show of hands, <laughs> who would like who would like to be a, an intern? And all these hands go up. Okay, number, okay, now these are the two. Show of hands, who wants to work on History of Rock and Roll? Of course, every hand goes up. You put like up both down. hands for the, auto, oh, right, no, for the automotive right? one. So, the funny thing is he's like writing people's names down. So then it's like, okay, and history of the automobile. I'm the only one who raises my hand. Wow. So he's like, okay, Beth, we will assign you to that. So I do that. and um, But what was great is because I, and I forget, let's say it was the next six months I'm working on it. I had a lot of responsibility. I obviously was passionate about it. Um, I think I had like a little bit of a voiceover because like the the lady that they had hired didn't show up. I mean, but the funniest thing is there were signs all along, Beth, like I'm studying broadcasting and film, but like there's this opportunity for cars and it was like, I'll do that, you know? So the fact that eventually I was smart enough to figure out to, to land where I am, it, it just, you know, it just took a circuitous route. I w- it was like I was on the Nordschleife and I just had to hit all the turns. Look at that. We worked in a ring reference. Boy, we're, we're killing Listen, it here. Right? So you... Make a name for yourself in real ways because I heard about you before I got a chance to know you from the oh, 
Dear. Well, no, just from the executive type roles that you had. You know, you mentioned Aston Martin and such, but just the, hey, she's a player. This is awesome. And then I start hearing about the SRT stuff. And then just to fast forward a little bit, hey, Mm -hmm. let's play factory Dodge Viper mm-hmm. American mm-hmm. Le Mans series, what mm-hmm. today's fans would call the GT Le Mans class, but full yes. factory, let's go kick some ass and win titles and beat up on Ferrari, Corvette, BMW, Porsche, right. etc. That's not a small task. Tell it's me about not. this, Beth, because it's not like you just say, I'm going to call a guy that runs a racing team and say, hi, can I give you a lot of money and you give us like wins and championships? You have to build something that doesn't exist and then tend to it and nurture and and make it succeed. That's, I mean, I've tried that and failed many times. So I just always marvel at folks like you who get it right. Well, so yeah, the peek behind the curtain of how that actually works is so I I get, uh, I meet Ralph Gilles, who at the time was the CEO of Dodge and, of course, the head of design for, this is as FCA is kind of gelling, right? Like, so it's just like as, as Fiat has come into Fiat Chrysler, we meet at an industry dinner in New York City, which was always on the eve of the, of the New York Auto Show that Auto Week Automotive News hosts, Um and it was always sort of an off-the-record, you know, executive get-together. Really lovely event. I don't know if they, they might still have it. And I wind up uh, casually meeting Ralph Gilles there kind of at the end of the night, like because everybody's name tag was like your name and the company you work for. At the time, mine is my name and Aston Martin. And the reason I would even get invited to such things is at the time, my boss at Aston Martin, you know, was based out of California and he didn't really travel that much. So anything that was East Coast, he had young kids. So he, you know, anything that was East Coast, I effectively was attending. So I, I kind of was more visible than the average person in that kind of role. Good for me, because I then get the invite to go to a dinner like that. And that dinner over the years is how I, I will say a uh, little known fact, not everybody in the car business is a car person. Mm. <gasps> what? <laughs> no. <laughs> And weirdly, and and honestly, fair play to anyone listening, I never would have thought that. And I didn't know that. Um, Certainly in Detroit, now living here, uh, it's a factory town. So yeah, I get it. I guess, yeah, if it's the business because your dad worked there, your grandfather, you know, grandmother worked there, whatever, I get it. You don't necessarily have the same passion or you take it for granted because it's always been around. Okay, fine. But with that said, those of us who are actually car people, we kind of know each other because we can sit and talk about um, racing or other, you know, other cars or, you know, launches of other vehicles and, and, and properly sit and appreciate, you know, like the new Maserati that's just been, you know, we can talk about it and, and whatnot. So anyway, I meet Ralph Gilles at this dinner and my name tag says Aston Martin. So of course he's like, oh my God, Aston Martin. I love Aston Martin's. And I said, well, of course you do. You're a designer. So I said, have you ever driven one? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well, the next time I come to Detroit, let me arrange for you to come to the dealership that, you know, I call on outside of, you know, in Detroit. And I'd love for you to drive the car. And he's like, oh my God, I'd love that. And that's the kind of thing that happens. It's like a professional courtesy thing. Yeah. So we exchange business cards 
And, uh, you know, it was the thing like the next day I was like, it was lovely to, you know, I sent in the email, like it was lovely to meet you. And you know, when I will be in Detroit in the next couple of months, I will reach out again. And of course I get the lovely polite response from his admin foreshadowing who later becomes my admin. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, you know, like, so we'll, we'll, we'll test drive the car. So anyway, I sure enough, like two months later, I'm, we're launching a new vehicle at the time. And so I made sure that reached out to him to say, Hey, would love for you to come by the dealership. We got these new cars, you know, have you drive it. So he did. And, um, I, we do this sort of like walk around, like, I'm like, let me show you the new car. Let me show you the dealership. Cause the de- in fairness, an Aston Martin dealership is pretty. So, and of course, as a, a designer, he's looking at it, you know, with that lens. And so we just kind of start chatting, whatever, fine. And it wasn't until like, um, six months later. So here's this weird thing that I just actually realized in myself the other day. So I wind up meeting these, these cats, you know, these folks, it's Ralph Gilles. Like that's a big deal. That in automotive, is. Right. But I meet somebody like that. And because of my circumstance, um, I'm able to just have a conversation with him. But why do I ha- am I able to comfortably have that conversation with him in New York City? Because it's like the Malcolm Gladwell thing. Like it's the 10,000 hours. It's because I've been reading car magazines for 10, I've got my 10,000 hours. And organically, um, there's an authenticity there. So I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's skirt. It's real, right? Like, and so there's that thing that helps you, uh, it's, the, you can build that rapport. So fast forward to, we have this lovely, like Saturday morning, he drives the car or whatever. Lovely. I'll, you know, lovely. See you around. Thank you. Thanks for your time. You know, and, and, but now we, it's beyond just exchanging a business card. Now, like now I spent two hours with you, you know who I am. So if I ever run into you again, you're going to remember this lovely morning that you drove three Aston Martins as you do. Uh, so fast forward to like a couple months later, randomly, I get this text message from Ralph Gilles. And I remember I was in my little company car working for Aston. So it's like, at this point it was a BMW X5 and I'm driving and I get this text message, uh, from Ralph Gilles. And he's like, Hey, um, I'd like to pick your brain about something. Keep in mind. And these are those little light bulb moments. So I'm like, sure. So we set up a time to talk the next day. And I remember that moment of like, the CEO of Dodge just texted me because he wants to pick my brain on something. And like, I've had little moments like that. I'm like, what? Cause listen, I, and I have, I have been blessed to hashtag blessed, uh, to have had many of those moments now. Um, and believe me, I've talked it without about like, I have like a list of like, I should write a book, but I've had so many funny, hilarious moments. That's not like a necessarily a funny, hilarious one, but it's that moment where, oh my God, the CEO of Dodge just texted me to like pick my brain about something. And I, I, it's not lost on me in that moment. And I have that moment of like, how the hell did this happen? So sure enough, we have a call the next day and he was talking to me about how, hey, listen, we have this idea. We want to elevate SRT. It's a trim level. We want to elevate it to a brand. We're going to be bringing the Viper back. Um, but based on like the way that we've designed it, this, that, the other, the way we're building it, it's a little bit, um, you know, it's a little bit more refined, this Gen 5 Viper. And I just want to kind of ask you this and that. Okay, fine. So I answer whatever the questions. And he says... Uh, he said, would, uh, would, he's like, I know, you know, you, you've got a great job, but like, would you consider talking about, would you consider talking about working with us or a job? 
And it's been my experience that when anybody ever says to you, would you consider talking to us? You say yes, mm. because you just say yes and, and then whatever. So you have the conversation. So they flew me out to Detroit um, and they showed me the SRT line and they tell me this and they, you know, whatever. And we, we kind of keep talking. And so this dialogue happens for a couple of months. And then I remember I was out in California and they were actually doing a press day at Willow Springs. And I'm out in, um, I'm out in Irvine where our office was for Aston Martin. And coincidentally, um, they were at Willow Springs. And so I randomly get this like email from Ralph Gilles and he's like, Hey, can you come to Willow Springs tomorrow? Randomly, I'm in Irvine, California. Like, yes, I can. Because like, I was supposed to fly out that night. And I was like, yeah, I can go to Willow Springs. So I go to Willow Springs, uh, as you do. And he had me like drive the cars and okay, fine. So I should say at this point that like I've already graduated from business school and my two uh, heroes when I was in business school were Sergio Marchionne and Roger Penske. At this moment, while I'm at Willow Springs, um, I have not met Sergio. I've actually talked to Roger because Roger Penske was one of my Aston Martin dealers. What? Yes. (laughs) You're foreshadowing Mrs. Peretta. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So, and Roger will tell the story far better than I do, but our first interaction was me yelling at him. Not really yelling, but more raising my voice. And it's way funnier when he tells it because he embellishes it, which is even better. But anyway, um, it had to do with him violating a, a, a point in the dealer agreement. And he claims he doesn't. I still to this day maintain that he did. Anyway, with that said, uh, so I go to Willow Springs and I, I drive the cars and Ralph's like, listen, we, you know, we, uh, Sergio Marchionne wants to elevate SRT to a brand, its own standalone brand. And really like, think of it as like an American AMG. And he's like, um, but we really would like, um, we would really like somebody to like, you know, help with like kind of run the business of it and the marketing and this and that, that, um, because it's a little bit, uh, it was kind of, it was just kind of skewing a little bit upward from where, where it had been previously. And then by kind of lumping these cars together. So the funniest thing is I actually hadn't worked in, worked in marketing. I worked in finance and operations, but yeah, you kind of get it all because it's authentic. So he's like, um, okay, so we'd really like to hire you. I was like, okay, wait, what? And he goes, but you need to, he goes, but here's the thing. He's like, if you're going to be a direct report to me, cause he was a CEO. And at this point, uh, Ralph has migrated. He's now not the CEO of, of Dodge. It's going to be announced that he's going to be the CEO of SRT. And with that is motorsport. Great. So Ralph says to me, and I remember sitting on pit wall at Willow Springs and he said, um, but because you're going to be, you would be at my direct report and I'm a CEO, Sergio has this rule that like, that he has to interview all the direct reports of CEOs. He's like, so we, we need you to, you need to interview with Sergio Marchione. <laughs> and it was that moment of like, what? Like, Guy okay. Who's really right. Who's my other business hero. Yeah. Right. So he's like, so we'd like to fly you back to Detroit, you know, at, in the next couple of weeks, like we'll, we'll get in touch about when we can fit you into his schedule. Fantastic. Excellent. So I, uh, go back home to Boston and within like a couple of weeks, I'm back out to Detroit to interview with Mr. Marchione. And, um, 
I remember that they, I had to meet with HR ahead of time. And, and the Fiat Chrysler building, like any automotive headquarters, you know, lots of security, you know, you, you, you know, you go in and you've got to, you know, sign in and, and you're like escorted through the building. So I had this meeting with HR before Sergio and they're like, we, you know, they're like, we just want to prep you for your HR is like, we just want to prep you for your interview with Sergio. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm sitting at this little table and they're like, um, here's the thing about when you meet with Sergio, um, just be yourself. I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, we don't know like where it's going to go. He might ask you questions like all over the place. I was like, uh, okay. And they're like, just be yourself. I'm like, good talk. So anyway, they then bring me down to uh, like the little ante room and I'm waiting for him. And he comes out and I could see it's summertime and I could see that like he, he clearly sees me in the waiting area and, is, and I could see him kind of like look to his assistant kind of like, who's that? Mm. <laughs> like he's no idea I'm there. And so they give him my resume and he goes back in and he's in there for like five minutes. And then, then there's like this, like, okay, like, like bring her in. So I go in and, um, I sit down and he asks, do you mind if I smoke? And we're like, please go ahead. And, uh, and it was just the two of us in his office for 45 minutes. And the first question he asked me was like, so you work for Aston Martin, like, you know, tell me about the line. And I was like, you know, like meaning the cars in the line. And I realized he did that to see, to just make me comfortable and probably just to see how I spoke about them. And, um, whenever you have an interview for a job that you're not like, I didn't apply for this job. Like you're seeking, like, so I will say I had a comfort level. Like I, I was, I wasn't, I mean, I was a bit nervous, but not like, cause I didn't really understand, like, I didn't quite know yet what the job really was going to entail. So it's not like I had a huge framework. It was just like, I have this opportunity, no matter what, if today, if this completely tanks, I have a face-to-face meeting with Sergio Marchioni. Like that's my takeaway. So cool. And so we sat there and, um, he asked me about the lineup and I, and he's like, and I think I might've even just said, I was like, well, we have this, we have this, we have this, we have the repeat. And I'm like, that's kind of my favorite. Cause it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And, um, he said, oh, is it? And he's like, what, why, you know, what, what about it? So like, I kind of then go into, and it's that car talk and he's a car guy and I'm a car guy and we're just talking. And it was like that immediate, like all the other pretense just fell away because it's just two car guys talking. And, uh, so I say the wolf in sheep's clothing and he's like, oh, I totally get that. And, and, uh, He's like, I said, you know, what do you drive or something better? I said, what, what's your, or, cause I said, have you driven an Aston Martin? He goes, no. He goes, my problem is I can't be seen driving stuff. Cause yeah. as soon as I am, people start to talk. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. So I said, I was like, you know, what do you have that you like? And, um, I remember him saying, he's like, I've got an Enzo. I goes, I've got a Ferrari Enzo. He goes, but he goes, it's kind of a, he's like, it's kind of like a, a part, like from the parts bin or something like that. I'm like, you've got like a Frankenstein parts bin Enzo. We laughed at that. And uh, I said, you know, something about like, what's your favorite car that you have? And he said, I have a, um, an RS6 that's been tuned. Mm. And I said, and I said, an Avant? And he goes, yeah. I said, do you have it here? He goes, no, it's, it, it's at my office in Turin. And uh, he's like, but I can't really be seen driving it. And so I just literally, because here's the thing is like, sometimes in those moments, like I just have no filter. So I said, I was like, do you wear a false mustache? Yeah. And he literally goes, no, but I should. And it was like that, just like, there were, it's just like two people talking. And, uh, and, and it's like this weird thing. Like it doesn't, 
it occurs to me who he is and it occurs to me his position, just like it occurred to me that Ralph Shields was texting me. But I think that once you kind of then have established that we're just car guys or we're just racing guys, there's this interesting sort of thing that happens. And there's an interesting thing about being able to talk to Roger Penske and being able to talk to Michael Andretti and being able to talk to Richard Petty and, and let alone all the racing drivers who we all know. And that is kind of, I think, there's that common thread and that common language that we speak if you're speaking it authentically. You can't fake it. If you're faking it, we know you're faking it. But if it's real, you know, so anyway, so I, I said false mustache. He said I should. And I thought that was, it was funny that he got it too, yeah. you know, like that he got the joke. So then, um, but it's he those little kinda, things, Beth. It's those little grace notes oh, where people, where you go, Okay. All right. Your family. Right. And literally as I, so talking to him was like talking to a pinball because like you'd, he'd ask you a question, you'd answer it and he'd like ricochet off uh, onto something else, like while you're answering the question. So he asked me a question, I was answering it. And all of a sudden in the middle of while I was answering him, he goes, where'd you get that watch? And I was like, what, what, my watch? Where'd I get it? I was wearing a show part Mealy Melia. And I said, I, bu- I bought it. I'm like, it's not a real one. I said, it's my dream one day to do the Mealy Melia. And he goes, he, and he said, that's a nice piece. He goes, I have the same one. And like, that's that moment too of like, you know, the fact that he would even notice my watch or the fact that it's like a, a racing dork's watch. So anyway, end of that, you know, in, the, in whatever, end of that interview, we get up and now he's walking me out. And then there's the person from HR who's then now going to escort me out of the building. And we walk out. So it's Sergio and I in this, this, uh, you know, sort of maybe, you know, entry, like it was like a, like an assistant for HR is standing there. And, uh, Sergio looks to her, puts his, his hand on my shoulder and says, I think we should hire her. It would be a smart move. And I was like, thank you, sir. And he like goes back in his office and this woman is now escorting me out of the building. And she's like, well, how did it go? And she's, and she like, like, she kind of like looked like she saw, had seen a ghost. And she goes, I've never seen that before. I was like, oh, really? Like what? No joke. I get in the, right. I was like, oh, whatever. And I get in the car, the car service, because now it's a car service is going to take me back to the airport, right? Because I'm flying back to Boston. I just flew in for this. My flight's probably in like four hours or whatever. So I'm in the car service, the car going back to the airport. And which is like 45 minutes, 50 minutes while I'm in the car, the phone rings from HR with a job offer. So the the answer is, did they give you a microphone on the way out to roll down the window and drop it? I mean, that's just (laughs) nuts, Beth, you know, like you, you look to this guy as kind of mythical hero status. One of the most recognizable names in the world's <laughs> entire automotive industry, Fiat right. Chrysler, Ferrari, right. Maserati, right. Right. right? Right. And this guy's like, oh, yeah, you're my people. And that That's just, you know, that's so, the dream. And that was part one of my racing life and career with Beth Peretta. Really do look forward to you diving into part two. If you have not, you might visit marshallpruittpodcast.com. More than 1,200 back episodes here uh, our entire catalog sitting on that website so you might pay a visit if you don't subscribe there's a variety of options there whether it's itunes spotify etc so take a little visit use the search function on the top right of the site and yeah tons of interviews weekly shows q a stuff in-car audio ambient audio 
uh, silly stuff, all kinds of uh, all kinds of fun. I hope the Marshall Pruitt Podcast.com. All right, thanks once more to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com, and on to part two with Beth Peretta, my racing life and career. 